O'Hare Airport in Chicago four times in four days. And I have taken as my own the saying, I don't know whether I'm going to heaven or hell, but I know I have to change in Chicago. <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to share, if I may, an airplane story. Five men were in a light aircraft. President Carter, former President Ford, Henry Kissinger, a very old priest, and a very young hippie. And they're in the air about an hour when the pilot entered the cabin from the cockpit. He had a parachute strapped to him, and he was speaking very rapidly. He said, I have two announcements to make, and they're both bad. Number one, this aircraft has serious engine problems, which I cannot correct. We are going to crash. Number two, there are five of you and four parachutes. And he jumped. <laughs> so President Carter said, I'm neither better nor worse than any man alive, but I happen to be President of the United States. The country needs me. He took off. Mr. Ford said, I used to be President. My past experience can help him. He jumped. Kissinger spoke up immediately. He said, I am the most brilliant most intelligent man on earth the whole world needs me he jumped so the old priest with a lifetime of humble prayer behind him said I do not look forward to dying but I'm willing to he said my life is over yours is just beginning take the parachute and jump and the young kid said hey padre they no need to do that the most brilliant man on earth just jumped out of this airplane with my backpack on. <laughs> of course, you know what the custom is. After dinner, you tell an after dinner story. I have one. One night, at a very aristocratic, staid, old English men's club in London, four old gents were sitting around sipping their after-dinner brandies. And after about an hour, hour and a quarter of total silence, they figured it was about time they introduced themselves to each other. So the first old man said, I am a brigadier general, retired, married, two sons, doctors. And the other three went, hey. <laughs> 22 minutes later, the second old man said, Brigadier General, retired, married, two sons, barristers. <laughs> 31 minutes later, the third old man said, Brigadier General, retired, married, two sons, members of parliament. And the fourth old man spoke up immediately. Sergeant Major, retired, unmarried, two sons, <laughs> brigadier generals. <laughs> Isn't that a beauty?
I'd like this evening to address a facet of alcoholism that sadly enough is too rarely addressed in um, traveling around I have heard senior officers in the military church leaders employers say well alright I've sent this man this woman to treatment how do I know he'll never drink again well the answer is obvious no one knows whether anyone will ever drink again but there are certain signs in the sober life if you see them present you can pretty well bet that the alcoholic will stay recovered and well I'd like to talk about those signs tonight go to any school of alcohol studies attend any seminar they beat you to death with the symptoms of the illness and nobody talks about good health I humbly submit for your consideration that a minimum of 50% of our counselors have no real goal toward which they're counseling except don't drink even AA provides for the future when she demands of her children to practice the principles in all their affairs I'd like to talk about good health tonight and I'm going to base everything that I say on this parallel in another facet of human life most of you here are married and are parents let's say that for his birthday you give your son a 10-speed bike he's not quite used to it he's going down a hill he hits a rock over the handlebars he goes into a tree he suffers a slight concussion and a rather badly broken leg you take him to treatment you drive him to an emergency room you're all busted up yourself your emotions are a jumble you are practically speaking useless except that your presence is a kind of comfort to your child once you enter the emergency room the doctor and his team let you know right away broken bones are our business now you give your son to me and you sit down and he disappears with your child however long it takes he comes out afterwards he has your son with him the son's tears are dried he's rather calm from the anesthetic and he's all patched up his leg is in a cast the doctor has in his hands a bunch of pictures and he sits you down and he said now I'm going to show you what was wrong and he shows you he shows you where the bones were broken and how how the flesh was lacerated and torn uh, he shows you all the damage now he said I'm going to show you what we did and he shows you three or four pictures from different angles of the pin that he put in the leg of the sutures and the bindings and so on in the cast and then he says here is what you do and this is what you look for in his recovery 
He is to do these things, he's not to do these other things. And after a certain amount of time, when everything is strengthened and healed and knit, we're going to remove that cast, and all other things being equal, within such and such a number of months, he'll be riding his bike again. I submit for your consideration that's exactly what we should do with any illness, especially alcoholism. It is the most baffling, complex, complete, and destructive illness known. No one knows everything there is to know about it. We take an alcoholic to treatment. If the treatment center is reputable, they will tell you, alcoholism is our business. We're going to try our best to get him well. And then, when it is time for the alcoholic to leave, you are called in. In the better treatment centers, you are called in for a little treatment for yourself. But nonetheless, where that does not occur, you are called in, and alcoholism should be explained to you. The treatment people should let you know what was done in treatment, and should let you in on what you are to expect. And they should explain what the sober life is about, what the signs and the symptoms of sobriety are all about, and these are the things that you should look for and act accordingly. If you see them, you do this, and if you don't see them, maybe you do something else. At Guest House, the sanatorium for alcoholic priests, where I recovered some years ago, that was done by Austin Ripley, the man who founded it. Before you returned home, he went. He spent many a dollar to get on many an airplane to see many a bishop or religious superior to explain alcoholism to him. This is what was wrong with this man. This is why he behaved the way he did. This is why a whole lot of things happened that are a baffling mystery to you. And this is what we did. And he spelled out the treatment. Then he says, now these are the things that are expected of you, and this is what you should look for. He said, this man was not evil, he was sick. He should therefore be given a position equal to or better than what he left. He absolutely has to have time to go to meetings because his life depends on it. And he has to have more time to help other alcoholics for his life depends on that. And one at a time, Rip educated the American hierarchy about the disease that was ravaging so many priests. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what is the disease? What is alcoholism? Let's look at some of the signs or symptoms of the disease, some of the results of alcoholism in a human life. Then we'll see what is to be done and what is to be looked for by you. The very first symptom of alcoholism is obvious. Compulsive, excessive drinking plus a denial of that drinking. The very term alcoholism is nothing but a synonym for addiction to alcohol, which is a drug. Alcoholism is an addiction. The characteristic of all addictions is compulsive use. The alcoholic drinks the way he drinks because he can't not drink that way. It is not a deliberate choice. Many alcoholics drank in order to achieve oblivion, but many, most alcoholics, 
always believed that they would control it the next time they started. And every one of them said, next time it'll be different. It always is, of course, it is always worse. But they do not and cannot grasp why, simply because they don't know why. The alcoholic drinks against his will. And for those of you in this audience who still might believe that alcoholism is a question of willpower, I'm asking you to believe this even if you don't believe it. If alcoholism were a question of willpower, there wouldn't be any alcoholics. All right. A lot of people deliberately drink too much. Social drinkers on occasion choose to drink an excessive amount, but they do so freely. The alcoholic is not free. What's the difference usually between a heavy drinker and an alcoholic? A heavy social drinker usually is very open about it and always says, well, now I can take it or leave it alone, etc., etc. The alcoholic lives denial. His whole life is a lie. Now, you know, even in AA circles, many people say, yes, it's a disease, and in the next breath they'll say, I was phony and I did it, as though it's a deliberate moral thing. Uh uh. The antics and the denial and the lying of the alcoholic is dictated by the disease. Now, my friends, I am going to tell you why alcoholics lie and why they live the lie. How many of you in this room has ever stood before another person almost swaying? Have you been drinking? You say no. And it's a very degrading thing to go through that because you know that the person you're lying to already knows the truth. Why do people do such a thing? Why does the alcoholic degrade himself to that extent? Simplest reason on earth. He is addicted to a drug without which he cannot live. He's addicted to a chemical without which he cannot function. And he'll do anything to protect it. And instinct, not reason, instinct tells the alcoholic that if he lies about his drinking, he somehow is protecting it. He also knows instinctively that if he tells you the truth, you're going to tell him to quit, and he can't. And so the alcoholic not only verbalizes lies, but he lives the lie in his actions. How many of us, when we were drinking, tried to cover up a hangover? So that people wouldn't know we were drinking last night. The alcoholic lives the lie. So the very first symptom of this problem that we call alcoholism is excessive drinking plus a denial of it. Now, my friends, watch the repercussions of that. What happens when you live against your conscience? You shatter your relationship with God. You shatter it. And the very first result of this physical, biochemical disease of alcoholism is spiritual in nature. Number one, isolation from God. And Bill Wilson discovered this as soon as he started to work with alcoholics. Remember when he asked Dr. Silkworth, I wonder if I might not get sober by trying to help another drunk? Dr. Silkworth said, I don't know. Why don't you try? And he went out and he spoke to men and women day after day, week after week, and month after month. He came home and he said to Lois, his wife, he said, I have talked with perhaps 500 men and women. They are all still drinking. You know what he was using to try to get them sober? What most of us non-knowledgeable clergy do with all alcoholics. 
He was appealing to them through some very sophisticated religious principles. But the chemical had so separated or shattered or warped the God-man relationship in the soul of the alcoholic that these principles were being denied or pushed off. So many alcoholics are so deathly afraid of God because they're living against conscience that they deny him. They say there is none. And it was from that first lesson about the effect of alcoholism, isolation from God, that Bill Wilson developed the tactic of using the term we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves. He had the word God in the second step and had to remove it and substitute that because the alcoholic was so messed up in his relationship with God he had to get him to God through a back door. The first repercussion of living against your conscience is a separation from God because once the drug drugs the brain, kills inhibition and kills conscience, lying is only the start of an immoral life. AA teaches us this. The disease is not immoral. The subsequent behavior is. That's why step four tells us to take a fearless and searching moral inventory. The alcoholic lives a degrading life and begins to wonder why. Am I evil incarnate? And the only thing that can alleviate the pain of conscience is more of the drug that causes that pain. And so we have this vicious squirrel cage of alcoholism propagating and multiplying itself. Now, <coughs> excessive drinking plus denial results first in isolation from God. If I am separated from God who made me for himself, I cannot be happy with me. The alcoholic is isolated from himself. I maintain God's greatest gift to the alcoholic is the internal pain that usually occurs if he is blessed to reach this point when he wakes up one morning, looks into a mirror, and experiences an overwhelming desire to throw up simply because he cannot stand what he's looking at. The low self-image of the alcoholic may oftentimes uh, kind of spell itself out in arrogance, and bombast and loud noises and intellectual superiority but one who is unhappy with himself acts that way a kind of a superiority and I am above all other humans is a sick, sick thing for starters but usually the alcoholic's image of himself is so low that it externalizes itself that way and after a bit this one who wanted to join the human race through alcohol so he could feel at ease with people now uses alcohol to separate himself with people because he doesn't want people to see the real self. I don't want you to see the real me. And even in AA, when we tell our stories, I'm going to tell you enough about myself to try to get you to like me. You want to prove that point? 
The next time you're asked to speak at an AA meeting, have your wife talk about your drinking years and you tell about your recovery. <laughs> Sound like two different lifetimes. When you tell your drinking past, you pick and choose the things that are going to get people to like you, or if they're bad, you're going to pick the things that are going to get people to sympathize. We're built that way. We are simply built that way. The self-loathing of the alcoholic separates him from himself. If I'm isolated from God and I'm isolated from self, how in the name of heaven can I have any relationship with other human beings? In the family film, I tried to spell out the emotional repercussions of being unable to have normal relationships with other people. Even sexuality becomes either disgusting or perverted. Normal relationships of love turn into love-hate. People who are supposing to be teaching love to their children are pulling on their children for the affection that each craves. And so we become isolated from others. The results? Frustration. I am built to love. We were made to... You and I are love machines. Even the very bodies of male and female were created to become one flesh in the act of the reproduction of new life. The alcoholic cannot love because he's not free. He is shackled to self. I despise people who say AA is a selfish program. God, I'd like to get the man that invented that saying and strangle him with it. It's anything but selfish. It is properly self-oriented, but selfish? You don't raise your kids to be selfish, do you? You try to give them a proper evaluation of themselves. The AA is anything but a selfish program. It is oriented toward commitment to others. We try to carry the message to alcoholics. AA is other-oriented after a rebuilding of self. Do you know what it is like not to be able to fulfill the very purpose for which you were made? Can you imagine what it's like to build a beautiful chair and then encase it in glass and no one ever sits on it? Chairs are made to be sat on. Airplanes are made to be flown. An airplane is still an airplane when it's in a hangar for repairs, but it is most an airplane when it's in the sky. An alcoholic is still a human being when he's locked up in his own prison of the bottle, but he is most a human being when he's free to love. What's the result of frustration? Total frustration. A seeking of oblivion, which often is death. Suicide among alcoholics is very high. But you know the paradox of the alcoholic? Go to enough meetings, you will hear people speak of attempted, attempted suicide. The poverty-stricken alcoholic, he is not even good at that. He's afraid to live and afraid to die. And frustration he lives with. The result of isolation from anybody is total aloneness. Alone. Every alcoholic is an island of misery. Whoever said that the alcoholic is alone in a crowd didn't even come close. Didn't even come close. And the ultimate overall result, and I maintain and I've said this hundreds of times, 
I believe that our illness teaches us one thing. How to be scared to death. Fear. Ungodly fear. I used to feel... I'm not saying this for dramatic effect. I believe it. I used to believe people could smell my fear. I remember one time speaking of a friend of ours, Dr. Walter Leckler over in Germany. He has a young uh, phys ed fellow there to handle building up of the body of the patients. One other job he has. He gets groups of new patients and takes them for midnight hikes into the Black Forest for a barbecue. It takes three hours to walk in. They have an hour or so there and they walk back at dawn. To get them over their fear of the dark, I remember mentioning that at a gathering one night and a man came up to me after. He's about 50 years old. He's a building contractor, a pillar in his community. He said, boy, father, were you ringing bells? He said, I remember the last months of my own drinking. Every light, every TV, and every radio in my home stayed on 24 hours a day because I couldn't stand silence and I couldn't stand the dark. Fear. So you find someone who drinks excessively and denies it. He's isolated from God, from himself, and from others. He lives frustration, aloneness, and fear. And that is what comes into treatment. And people who are in the business of trying to get alcoholics well who do not realize that should not be in the business. Some other jackass in AA once made the statement, you have to be cruel to be kind. I hope to build a treatment center. It's in those little brochures. The first man that says that at my place, I will drive him to the airport. I will drive him to the airport. You are never cruel to sick people. People who say that, you have to be cruel to be kind, they really in their guts do not believe that alcoholism is a disease. They really don't. You cannot say out of this side of your mouth that alcoholism is sickness. All over sickness. Body, mind, emotion, and soul. And then say you have to be cruel to such people. How in the name of heavens do we even get away with such inhuman talk? Let alone the action that follows it. Oh, yes, you have to be firm. Yes, you have to uphold principles. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the stupidity of using a word cruelty in the treatment of a disease. But anyway, this is what comes into treatment. A poverty-stricken human being. Now, how do you get them well? Treatment. I believe that the primary treatment of alcoholism is found in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is found to be what works best for most. Now, I've heard this, in fact, just as recently as yesterday. Well, you fit treatment for the individual, obviously. And AA can't help some people. That's an erroneous statement. The 12 principles of AA are perfectly valid. They work. This is the only therapy on earth that is purely pragmatic, practical. The two men who started AA, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith, they weren't out to write a theoretical handbook of monastic spirituality. They were out to continue to breathe. 
They wanted to survive. They weren't theorizing about anything. They reached out to the entire human race. For those of you who kind of either or spirituality and religion, and you go to meetings on Sunday instead of the church, don't you know where your 12 steps came from? The churchmen of the era to whom Bill and Dr. Bob reached out, that's where those principles came from. AA didn't invent the 12 steps. She discovered them. They've been around for centuries. AA discovered them. But they have been found to be so powerfully effective that they are now used for every other human ailment. Gambling, narcotics, overeating, and emotional illness. This same Dr. Leckler that I just mentioned to you, at his clinic in Germany, he treats drug addiction, alcohol addiction, and emotional disturbances primarily through the 12 steps of AA. However, AA does not handle everything. Number one, alcoholism is a physical disease. It's a biochemical addiction to a drug. All alcoholics are usually woefully, suffering woefully from malnutrition. AA doesn't handle your diet. Most alcoholics haven't been near a doctor in years. What alcoholic has his eyes examined regularly? What alcoholic has his teeth looked at every six months? What alcoholic goes annually for a physical? When an alcoholic suspects that some doctor is going to talk to him about his drinking, he stays waiting doctors. AA does not handle the physical part except negatively to get you off of the drug that is destroying you. The very first thing that happened to Guest House, you were sent to a hospital for three days to get a complete physical to find out what needs patching up. And ladies and gentlemen, if there are any of you members of AA here who do not believe in that, go back to the beginnings of the fellowship. Guess where Bill got sober? In a hospital. <laughs> AA is not your religion. AA is not your marriage counselor. AA is not a used car salesman. And I always say this. If you see me in an accident, for God's sake, don't get me to a meeting. Get me to an emergency room. <laughs> AA tells you exactly what she will do. Exactly. Let's go back to the statement. AA cannot help some people. That is not true. Some people are incapable of responding to AA. That is true. Please make that distinction. Some people are not capable of responding to AA, so you get them sober in whatever way you can. AA will be the primary therapy at our treatment center, Ashley. All reputable rehab centers have AA as their primary therapy. Now, let's go back to the definition of alcoholism. Sickness of body, mind, emotion, and soul brought about by the compulsive use of beverage alcohol. We need treatment of body, mind, emotion, and soul. And so, at Ashley, we will have knowledgeable, preferably recovered alcoholic doctors for the body. We will get them to nearby medical places where they can be evaluated for diet and nutrition, such things that have never been looked at before. We will have psychiatry for mental problems, if it is called for. We will have psychologists for emotional problems that specifically can't be handled in general. 
and we will have knowledgeable clergy to patch up their souls. But all of this stuff will come after sobriety. Sobriety comes first, then you handle all these other things. Bill Wilson himself said, as far as religion is concerned, he said, if you get well right, you're going to get well all over. So whatever you were before, you ought to be a better one afterwards. You ain't well yet. Of course, we're going to keep out dangerous clergy. You know what I mean. I've often said to many professionals, ignorance is no sin. Advertising it is. If you don't know this disease, the most complex of them all, for God's sake, don't try to treat it. If the people that fooled with my life hadn't known what they were doing, I would be dead. I would be dead. So we will have knowledgeable people who know the disease, know what needs to be done, and know how to do it. Many, many people look at the film of the Chalk Talk and misinterpret what I say about professional people. For God's sake, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not against professionals. I have to be one. Secondly, in my own treatment, I had the help of a clinical psychologist for seven solid months and I could not have survived without him. What I try to say in that film is you put treatment in its proper place. The man who helped me had a sober patient to deal with. That's all I say. Sobriety comes first. And we will see to it that sobriety comes first. And all these other healing sciences will be secondary to the main science. And it is a science of AA. Here's what was wrong. We've tried to spell out the disease. Here's what we did. I've just tried to spell out treatment. Now here's what you look for. What are the symptoms of sobriety? Well, what is sobriety? If alcoholism or inebriety is sickness of body, mind, emotion, and soul brought about by the compulsive use of alcohol, sobriety obviously is its opposite. It's a return to good health of body, mind, emotion, and soul brought about by abstinence from alcohol and the living of the 12 principles of AA. The first result is obvious. Let's go back to the symptoms of the disease. Excessive drinking plus denial, isolation from God, isolation from self, isolation from others, resulting in frustration, aloneness, and fear. Let's look at the symptoms of sobriety. In place of excessive drinking plus denial, you have abstinence plus admission and acceptance. Now, in the AA community, there is one phrase you do not find, for some reason or other, it is never used, to be on the wagon. You never hear that in AA. Never. On the part of people who deliberately quit temporarily with the idea of going back to drinking, they say they're on the wagon. They're on the wagon. On the wagon is vocabulary you will not hear in sober circles. It is not enough to stop the drinking. It is absolutely essential to admit and accept the fact that something was wrong. They say in treatment centers, Rip used to use the expression at guest house, he would look at a priest and say, as the priest was ready to leave, he'd say, Father, well, I could almost tell to the day when you turn the corner. When, when the admission takes place, it, it may even be 
The person who does may even be unaware of it. But he begins to use language like, well, we alcoholics, or that's typically alcoholic, or he becomes very open talking about it. Rip says he just turned the corner. He's on his way to getting well. There is an open admission and acceptance of the drinking problem. Now, please, excessive drinking, which drugs the brain and kills the conscience, obviously results in aberrant, usually immoral behavior. My God, it's, good enough, it's hard enough to stay good when we're sober. And it's always easy to be good when it's easy. Now, what happens when we get rid of the drug that deadened the conscience, that opened the door to immoral behavior? You look for the opposite. You see rather strangely normal behavior. A lot of the goofy things that people did under the influence, they no longer do. There's a wonderful dear friend of mine out in South Dakota. He looks like Santa Claus without the red suit. The grandfatherly type. Personally, I cannot visualize him with a drink in his hand. But he was a piperino when he was drinking. And uh, he himself one day, we were, I've logged hundreds of miles with that man in his car. When you go to South Dakota, you go a hundred or, you know, a couple of hundred miles between points, you know, to get where you're going. He said one time he woke up with a horrible, horrible hangover. And somehow or other he looked out the back bedroom window of his house and he said there was a live horse in his backyard. And he blinked three or four times. Sure enough, it was a horse. And he went downstairs and his wife Delia was putting the coffee on. She looked a little irritated and nervous. And of course, poor old Ed. He had the granddaddy of all hangovers and he almost whispered, he said, where did that horse come from? And boy, she went right up through the chimney. Where did that horse come from? You bought it last night and brought it home. He bought it for the daughter. And he said the old horse was there for a long while and the kids rode it and so on. All right, now. Ed did that during his drinking days. He had blacked out. He could not recall buying a horse. Ed is sober today. He no longer brings horses home. <laughs> the difference between present undrugged behavior and the past is like night and day. For heaven's sake, it's visible. Uh, for example, there's a friend of mine in AA when he goes into a restaurant, of course, the waiter, the waitress always says, would you care for a drink? His standard reply, I would care for about 52 drinks, but I have to be in Albuquerque in August. <laughs> Which indicates what used to happen before. He has another, or there's another fellow, I don't know, somewhere here in the East, He'll enter a restaurant and uh, his standard reply, would you care for a drink? He says, no thanks, I'm allergic to it. And one day a waitress, she's only about 18 years old, she said, what? He said, I am allergic to alcohol. She said, never heard of it. What in the world do you mean by that? He said, when I drink, I break out in spots. <laughs> New York, San Francisco, London. <laughs> he no longer does that. So you see, the very first, the very first results of sobriety, the very first symptom of sobriety, no drinking and no goofy results that used to happen when he was drinking.
The woman who used to get drunk and give herself away no longer gets drunk and no longer gives herself away. Watch this, please. The first result of living against conscience is isolation from God. The God-human relationship is twisted, busted, warped, or shattered. What's the first result when you give up the chemical that is separating you from God? God is like a magnet. The soul yearns to get back. Listen to the wording of the steps. If an alcoholic truly lives the AA program, listen, step two, we came to believe that, a, listen to the definitions of God or the words we use for God in the program. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood him. Step five, admitted to God. Step seven, humbly asked him. Does that say anything to you at all? The farther and farther away you get from the drug that separated you from God, the closer and closer you get to God. Power greater than ourselves, God as we understood him, just plain God, and then the warm, personal Him. Ladies and gentlemen, every psychologist and every psychiatrist who would dare to fool with human beings should be made to study the psychology of those 12 steps. Once I am right with God, I have to be pleasing to myself. Don't we speak of serenity in AA? God grant me the serenity to accept what I cannot change. You know what serenity is? Ladies and gentlemen, I have heard whole meetings dedicated to serenity and all of us philosophers get around, well, I'm not sure, you know, I'm I'll tell you what serenity is. Peace of conscience. For God's sake, it's so obvious. Peace of conscience. I can sleep at night because I'm not doing anything wrong. What else? Peace of conscience. I do not believe that anything is alright as long as you don't drink. That's garbage sobriety. I wouldn't touch it with a thousand foot pole. Isolation from God becomes a deep relationship with God. And when things are right with God, then I become satisfied with me. Austin Ripley used to put it this way when a priest was leaving the house. He'd say, Father, you have one boss to please, and if you please him, you are automatically pleasing to yourself. You have therefore got to be pleasing to good people. It's only the rest that don't count. Ladies and gentlemen, have you ever heard this? Well, AA is no popularity contest, and I really don't care what people think of me. <clears throat> it's absolute nonsense. He thinks the lady doth protest too much. You never yak about a negative. You just don't talk about nothings. 
Let me tell you something. I deeply care what people think of me. I believe that having the respect of good people is an excellent indication that I'm living a good life. I also believe that if I do not have the goodwill and the respect of good people, that's a perfect indication I'm off-center. Remember that story I love to tell about the couple that went to West Point to see their kid graduate? The whole corps was marching past the reviewing stand. The mother turned to the father and said, Isn't that wonderful, Henry? 4,000 cadets out there, and our little Georgie is the only one in step. Well, God, when the whole world is out of step but me, I'm out of step. And that's a perfect indication that I am out of step. When I am not conforming to the laws that govern a life of goodness for most people. Now, if I am pleased that I am pleasing God, and I begin again to kind of like myself, I've got to be pleasing to others. And that spells itself out in a reaching out to others. You know what happens when the, when the alcoholic comes into treatment? He's a bundle, an island, an isolated, layered, layers of walls of misery. And the searchlights of caring and the warmth of love begins to shine on him. He begins to open and those layers begin to unfold one at a time. And his naked soul is there and he begins to get well because he's no longer shackled. Then they hand him a searchlight. And when the new alcoholic comes in, he points his own love and care onto him. He is bursting now to do what God intended him to do, which is to love. And the only way to love is to give. And AA spells out what love is all about in step 12. We tried to carry the message to others. And it appalls me to hear some AAs lay down conditions under which they're going to help a drunk. The big book that I read does not say we tried to carry the message to alcoholics who picked up the telephone, called the central office, and asked us to. Don't you know how it began? Don't you know how AA began? Dr. Bob didn't call Bill. Bill called him a total stranger. They say if you want to get disillusioned in the program, put yourself on answering service and try to get somebody to answer a 12-step call. It almost makes you give birth to cynicism. If I learn to love again, I'm expected to. I'm expected to. The fear disappears because I have none of these things to fear. When Bill Wilson said... Look, if you get well, your irrational fears, your unnamed anxieties should leave. But there are a whole lot of rational fears that should remain. I've heard this spoken in some AA circles. Well, I'm, I'm really not afraid of alcohol. I respect it. I don't. To me, the word respect means to look up to. I respect people. I respect principles. I cannot respect the chemical that dang near killed me. I hope I go to my grave fearing that drinking will kill me. Because the day I lose that fear, only God knows what I might try. 
Now that's a healthy fear. It's like being afraid of fire. I think we should never forget that. Now, if you choose to respect alcohol, be my guest. Be my I just don't. You know the wisdom you pray for in serenity prayer? God grant me the wisdom to know the difference. Scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Evidently, it's a good fear, huh? I kind of... I just can't say God's my buddy. One day he's going to judge me. I go, hi, buddy. You can... <laughs> I'm just... Uh, I'm not that close yet. <laughs> The aloneness disappears. There aren't enough hours in the day. There just aren't. I heard a man say just yesterday, he said, God, I was so alone when I was drinking. He said, I have more friends than I know what to do with now. The people that responded to help him put on an evening like this, he, he couldn't get over it. He just couldn't get over it. You know what good health is spelled out? Well, it is spelled out in these words. They are Dr. Bob Smith's. The therapy of AA is wrapped up in six simple words. They are his. Trust God. Clean house. Help others. God, self, others. Trust God. Clean house. Get those two things in shape. Now I'm able to go out and help others. Trust God. Clean house. Help others. (laughs) Simplicity itself. What is it that you see in a recovered alcoholic? Someone who goes up to his boss and says, Thank you for sending me away. If anyone else in this plan has the problem, call on me. He's the fellow who doesn't curse doctors. He goes to make them knowledgeable. I remember one time I was leaving an auditorium like this out in Colorado Springs. And a social worker came up to me. She was angry. She says, How do we get to these doctors? I said, One at a time. (laughs) They're people. Why do you condemn someone for not having knowledge that you never gave him? Ladies and gentlemen, morons curse the darkness. Caring people like lights. Let's stop crucifying people because they don't know anything about our disease. How the hell much did we know about it till we got well? I, I just... I I have no time for negative people that point to other people's faults. They don't know anything. You know know what I've heard? I tried psychiatry. It didn't work. I tried religion. It didn't work. I tried doctors. They didn't work. I have yet to hear somebody with guts enough to stand up and say, I tried them all and I didn't work. (laughs) One sign to look for in someone who is truly well is balance. Balance. AA even says to us, I will save your life, but I am not your whole life. If you're married, you have a wife. If you're a parent, you have children. If you work, you have a boss. Fulfill your responsibilities and don't use me as a cop-out. Ladies and gentlemen, there are alcohol abusers. Dr. Joe Persh from U.S. Naval Hospital in Long Beach refers to himself as a former 
alcoholic abusers. He used to abuse alcoholics by giving them wrong treatment. He used to fill them with tranquilizers till he learned alcoholism. And there are AA abusers. Yes, we need more therapy in the beginning than later. Yes, we need maintenance meetings to maintain our sobriety and to be there when others come. But we have obligations, my friends, and I believe that the good God gives sobriety in order to fulfill those responsibilities. Balance is the key to, you know, we all use the term quality sobriety. That's the key, balance. And then the infallible sign of recovery. And ladies and gentlemen, it is. It's the infallible indication that a person is getting well. A return of a sense of humor. This is the only terminal illness about which we make jokes. And I guess we have to. I've said for years, and I heard it repeated tonight by another. The reason I tell jokes when I lecture, if I didn't, I'd cry. Fellow come home drinking. His wife said, why have you come home half drunk? He says, I ran out of money. <laughs> but he says, I did buy something for the house. She said, what? He says, a round of drinks. <laughs> she says, your drinking will kill me. He says, I'll have a double shot. <laughs> The drunk walked along the seashore and the ocean brought in a bottle, you know, one of these corked bottles. And it was misty, foggy inside. When he opened it out came a genie. Genie said, thanks for giving me my freedom. You have three wishes. The fellow said, first of all, I'd like this bottle to stay filled all the time. The genie said, so be it. Filled. He drank it empty. Filled. He stared at it in disbelief. He's holding a fresh cork in his hand. Genie says, what are your other two wishes? He says, give me two more of these. <laughs> I love those one-liners. Do you ever hear about the one-fingered pickpocket? The only thing he could steal was lifesavers. <laughs> the alcoholic has learned to laugh again. Because he's learned to love again. Because he's learned to live again. Free of the drug that was destroying him. Bill Wilson said, Look for the person who would have been if alcohol had not entered his or her life. Plus, there's an added dimension giving, given by having lived through the alcoholic years. And the truly recovered alcoholic is not only grateful for his sobriety, kids are grateful for ice cream cones, adults are grateful for sweating to earn the price of it. The alcoholic is truly grateful for the disease that was absolutely essential for him to get where he got. I do not look on my drinking years as lost. They were an apprenticeship for what I'm doing now. I cannot believe that they were lost or despair would set in. 
Austin Ripley gave the most astoundingly beautiful definition of sobriety I have ever heard. I saved every letter I ever got from him. And I remember always I thanked him and Guesthouse for the, what they did for me. And he wrote this line back to me. It was so incredibly beautiful I memorized it. Do you know what, do you know what his definition of sobriety is? I thank God for the role that I was privileged to play, however slight, in your own magnificent rediscovery of self. Isn't that beautiful? Ladies and gentlemen, this, I hope this was not a wasted evening. But you really didn't need me to come here and say these things. Because you see, if you have eyes, you can see all of this in a recovered alcoholic. And if you have ears, you can hear it. And if your soul has fingers, your heart can touch it. And be touched by it. And I am touched by it every time I stand on a stage like this. Because I'm looking at it. There's an incredibly lovely song of the sea which expresses best what I feel at a time like this. Roger Whitaker sang these words. For you are beautiful. And I have loved you dearly. More dearly than the spoken word can tell. Thank you for coming tonight. Thank you for listening.